So I got to get all settled here and worked out. Uh, good morning. It's good to see you on a, uh, on a snowy day. I was talking with somebody earlier, and she said, isn't the snow beautiful? I thought, yeah, everywhere except on my driveway. <laughs> so um, it's good to be here. It's, um, I want to thank you all. You, um, we're without a pastor right now. The pastoral search team is working hard. Um, we're getting closer. Um, but you all have been so encouraging to all, the four, all four of us preachers. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, it's really helpful to know that you're not going to come on. We're tired of hearing you guys. Would you please hurry up? Um, but I haven't heard that. It's been good things, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to preach anywhere. It's especially privileged to preach here this morning. Lord God, as we turn to your word, help us to hear your voice, not mine, your voice, as you speak through your word so graciously, but also in ways that confront us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have to bring us up to speed from last week. If you remember what happened last week, this is a continuation of what happened. Last week, Jesus is going through the fields with his disciples, right? And they're plucking grain and eating it. And the Pharisees say this word. They say, behold, right? And you know when that word behold is, I like to translate it, pay attention. So here's what the disciples do, the Pharisees do. They say, Jesus, pay attention. Your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, it wasn't unlawful, according to the Bible. It was their laws that they were breaking. But they're saying, you're not a good, you are not a good rabbi because you're not paying attention to what your disciples are doing. Bad. And then Jesus responds to them, well, let's look at Scripture. And he says, was it good to feed the hungry? When David came in to feed his men, was it good for him to do that? To which they had to have to say, yeah, of course it was. It's Scripture. But that you can see him smoldering. You know, that Jesus, just a, he's just a wise guy. You know, he's bringing out Scripture. And then Jesus says, is it good to do mercy? And you could just, mm, you can see him going, mm. And that brings us to this passage, okay? They, so they immediately, uh, it, our passage says, and he went on from there. He went on from those fields. He went on from that discussion, and he entered their synagogue. And I just want to pause at their synagogue. It's really interesting in Scripture that Jesus doesn't enter ever, never, enters a synagogue or the synagogue. It's almost always their synagogue. And that got me thinking, hmm, what about that? Why, why is, does the, do our gospel writers say their synagogue? I think there's a reason for that. Because Jesus, although it says in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him. Absolutely. But from the Gospels, we also learn 
that Jesus enters space that we consider our, our space. This is their synagogue. This is their space. This is where the Pharisees are in charge. This is where they think they, they, they rule. This is where they are experts. And you know what? It got me thinking that Jesus likes to come into our life where we are the experts, where we think we are in charge. I'm in charge of my kids. I'm in charge of my marriage. I'm in charge of my work. I'm in charge of my home. Really. Because Jesus likes to go there, T-H-E-R-E, into your home. Now, what's really interesting about this passage is it's a courtroom scene. So they've had the discussion out in the field. There have been accusations. Jesus, you are not a good rabbi. You are paying no attention now he goes into their synagogue where they're in charge. And it's a court scene where the Pharisees are the judge, the Pharisees are the prosecutor, the Pharisees are the jury, and Jesus is, that makes Jesus what? The defendant, right? Only it's a little complicated, that, and almost gets a little confusing because Jesus is really not the defendant. Jesus really is the judge, right? But that's not how they see it. So as we go through here, I'm going to try to bring up some of, some of this. It's a very dramatic scene, I think. And when they went on with their and entered their synagogue. Jesus entered their space, just like Jesus likes to enter your space and speak to you, where you think you are the judge, and you are the jury, and you are the prosecutor at times. And a man was there with a withered hand, and withered means is, is, his hand is just dried up. It's nothing. It's not just kind of, my, my hand doesn't move so much, but it's not withered. If you look at me, you say, oh, there's nothing wrong. But his hand is, is it's shriveled up. Think of a, a dried tree, a tree that is just shriveled up, or a plant that's shriveled up. That's what his hand looks like. And they asked him. Now, I've added some pieces from Mark. That's why it says on the screen, and Mark, because Mark adds some extra little details. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Mark adds this part. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath. Because if it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and they're watching to see if he heals on the Sabbath, and he heals on the Sabbath, then he's guilty as charged, right? He's a Sabbath breaker. Because what did they want to do? because they wanted to accuse him. You see the courtroom scene? Jesus is the defendant. They're asking the questions. And their point, they're the prosecutors. They want to prosecute Jesus. They want to accuse Jesus. They don't understand 
how Jesus observes the Sabbath. For Jesus, he doesn't observe it simply as law, which it is, and he does. But for Jesus, the Sabbath is not a time to accuse. Sabbath is a time of renewal. Sabbath is a time of healing. Sabbath is he, on the Sabbath, he goes into their synagogue in a different chapter, and he casts out demons. Sabbath is a time for cleansing. Now, none of you are demon-possessed. Really, you're not. I, I don't think there's a single person here. But there's a cleansing. That's why we have a prayer confession. That's why we confess our sins, because Sabbath is a time to confess and to cleanse and to make clean. And Jesus, that's really important to Jesus. But what about the man with the withered hand? He almost goes unnoticed. The man with the withered hand is a pawn to the Pharisees. He's just a playing piece. He's not a person. He's a pawn and not a person. He's somebody that they're going to use to manipulate, to accuse Jesus. Because for the Pharisees, Sabbath is a time to accuse. Sabbath is a time to judge. Demands a mean to an end. Jesus sees this man in a very different way. I want to share with you a story. It's not a story. Uh, an event um, about a professor. His name is Chris Gabbard. And it's a tragic story to begin as a very touching story at the end. And I could say it in my own words, but I want to read you this. Dr. Chris Gabbard used to believe that some human beings should be allowed or even encouraged to die. That's kind of the Pharisees with the man with the withered hand. Don't even notice him. Doesn't even matter that he's at their synagogue. In his own words, Gabbard, quote, grew up prizing intellectual aptitude and detesting poor mental functioning. This led Gabbard to adopt the ethics of the contemporary philosopher, Peter Singer, who argues, now listen to what he argues, who argues that society has a right to exclude people who are not persons. For instance, Singer and Gabbard believe that severely disabled people should either be killed or allowed to die. This guy teaches at a very prominent university. And that's what they teach. That, that philosophy that our kids are learning is in our universities. Killed or allowed to die. But the birth of Gabbard's son radically changed his viewpoint. During childbirth, his son experienced permanent brain damage. And today, he is a blind quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Gabbard writes movingly about the first time he saw his newborn son in the intensive care unit. And this is what he says. After his childbirth, 
I was deeply, I had deep, at his, after his childbirth, I was deeply ambivalent. Having been persuaded by Peter Sanger's advocacy of infanticide. But there was my son, asleep or unconscious, on a ventilator, motionless, under a heat lamp. Tubes and wires everywhere, monitors along his still and transparent crib. What most stirred me was the way he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for this shock of recognition. For he was the boy in my own baby pictures. The image of me when I was an infant. Today, Dr. Gabbard is an advocate for the inherent dignity of severely disabled human beings. After pointing to a 2010 Gallup poll that says nearly half of Americans, 46%, support assisted suicides, right? Gabbard writes, many such well-meaning people would like to end my son's suffering, but they did not stop to consider whether he is actually suffering. At times he's uncomfortable, yes, but the only real pain here seems to be the pain of those who cannot bear the thought of that people like my son exist. The story of Dr. Gabbard changes uh, his change of heart serves as a powerful reminder of the inherent dignity of every human being because we're made in God's image. And that's what the Pharisees didn't realize. And so they ignored this man with the withered hand. And it was their sanctuary. It was their synagogue. They have been in this place time and time again. And you know how easy it is to just bypass people we don't really care about, right? You know how easy it is how we can ignore people that we don't care about time and time again. The Pharisees either didn't realize or they ignored the fact that the man with the withered hand was made in his father's image, in God's image. They simply ignored it. And then this part is just in Mark, and it's important to put in here, I thought. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, rise up in the middle. Now, if I asked any one of you to rise up in the middle, it'd be pretty conspicuous, wouldn't it? You might be kind of embarrassed. That's why I put the picture of the yellow tulip amidst all the gray ones, because it stands out. There are times when we are called to stand up for Jesus. But what's hard is when we realize that standing up for Jesus means we stand out for Jesus. And in this culture, there are a lot of things that we need to speak against that are going to make us 
stand out. We stand up for the gospel about sexuality. We stand up for the gospel in our children's education. We stand up for the gospel to recognize the inherent dignity of the unborn. They're still children. If you stand up for that, you're going to stand out for that. In this culture, stand up. Is that okay with you? Is it okay that if you stand up for Jesus, you stand out for Jesus? The man is standing up in the middle of the synagogue, and Jesus asks the Pharisees a simple question about the Sabbath and the man. This is what he says. And he said to them, now I ask you, who's on trial? Who's the prosecutor? See how it flips? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, will not, and you have to realize, you're going to reach out, if the sheep is in the pit, you're going to have to probably call down a ladder. And you're going to have to stretch out your hands. You're going to have to grab that sheep and hold on to that sheep. Which one of you falls, if, if it has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is, well, we would all do that. Dummy. See, Jesus is a good prosecutor, isn't he? Jesus always knows the right questions. When Jesus, when, when the Pharisees ask questions of Jesus, he never answers their question. He always answers the question they should have asked because they're really bad prosecutors. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He's made his point. So you can see him with the jury. So it is lawful. It is lawful. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus knows about the inherent dignity of this man who is made in his Father's image. And he knows the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath is to do good and to heal. And then Jesus makes his, his statement. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They don't think, they, you know what's so interesting? Is they don't respond. And you know why they don't respond? Because they don't consider themselves on trial. How many of you have ever seen somebody who's on trial question the prosecution? It doesn't happen, does it? So who does Jesus think he is? Jesus is the defendant, is what they're thinking. And defendants don't ask questions of prosecutors. So I ask all of you again, what's the Sabbath for? For most people, Sabbath is just another day. And you go to church, and Drew talked about this last week, go to church, and you go home. And that's it, but not for Jesus. It's an opportunity to do good and to show mercy and to love and to bring healing. For Jesus, 
The Sabbath is a day unlike any other day. It's a day to save life. Now what's really interesting is Jesus' response to their silence. And again, I'm going to add a verse from Mark. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus is angry and Jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart. That word hardness is interesting. The word hardness comes from two words, meaning stone, right, hard, but also from um, the word callous, which means to cover with a thick skin, to harden by covering with a callous. That's what the word means, hard callous. How do you get calluses? Repeated behavior, right? For a while, I played the guitar in our praise team for about 10 years when I could play. And I'd form calluses on my fingertips. And that was good for me because you're dealing with steel strings and could really hurt when you first start. You build up a little callus so you don't feel it anymore. You don't sense it anymore. And that's what's happening with the, with the Pharisees. It's repeated behavior. This is not the first time they have ignored this man. They have repeatedly ignored this man. Doing good and saving lives is not a part of the way they think. Is it a part of the way you think? What causes, what repeated behavior in your life causes you a hard heart? That's how we develop hard hearts. By ignoring something God is trying to tell us. And eventually that hardens us towards God. It hardens us towards people. This is really interesting. In 2014, from the University of British Columbia, from the Souter School of Business, they concluded this, that being ignored at work is worse than being harassed or bullied at work. So we hear a lot about bullying, don't we? But this study concluded that being ignored is as bad, if not worse, than being bullied. The researchers defined ignoring someone as an individual or a group neglecting to take actions that engage another coworker when it would be customary or appropriate to do so. They just leave them out of the loop. In other words, ignoring someone uh, involves anything from having one's greetings go ignored. Thanks, Seth. To being excluded from invitations. How many of you had had kids that came home and go, I wasn't invited to my friend's party? Most of the people in my class were invited. I, how come I wasn't invited, Dad? How come I wasn't invited, Mom? And you begin weeping because they weren't excluded. Or they weren't included. They were excluded. Going silent when another worker tries to enter the conversation. When I do premarital counseling, we talk about the way we as 
spouses punish each other. You know what one of the ways we punish each other is? We just are silent to our spouse. And I see your smiles out there, so I know some of you do it. That's the way we punish. Surprisingly, as a study concluded, that ignoring somebody, which seems better uh, than overt harassment, was actually more painful. One of the lead authors of the study said, we've been taught that ignoring somebody is socially preferable. You don't, if you don't have anything to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. But ignoring, and you probably said that to your kids. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. But ignoring somebody actually leads people to feel more helpless, like they're not worthy of any attention at all. Who are you ignoring in your life? Who do you not want to pay attention to? Who do you want to walk away from? When you go downstairs for, for lunch after the sermon, who, whose table are you not going to sit out because you'd rather not? Receiving attention from others signals that one exists, that somebody matters to another person, and it affects others in that environment. In contrast, being ignored or excluded shuns and, and shun signals that this person is inconsequential as a social being, as unworthy of my attention. That's what's going on in this courtroom. That's what they want. They want to accuse Jesus of something, but Jesus is a far better prosecutor. They're saying, this man's made in God's image. Don't you dare. Don't you dare ignore him. And Jesus is angry that they have so often ignored this man that they've developed a hard heart. When we ignore others, it hardens our heart. When we ignore anything that God tells us to do, it hardens our heart. So who do you ignore in your life, in your church? Who gets the silent treatment by you? Sometimes it's our own family, a mother, mother-in-law, sister, brother. I know of, of sisters and siblings who haven't spoken to each other for years. And the longer that goes on, the harder the heart, the deeper the callous, the bigger the callous. Jesus is going to sum up his concluding arguments. He says this, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So you see the court-like atmosphere? They are the jury now. They wanted to be the prosecutor. That didn't work out so well. They are the judge, and they're the jury. That's the way they like it. Not Jesus. Not Jesus at all. So I ask you this question. They, their, their conclusion is, Jesus needs to be destroyed. Pretty powerful word, isn't it? 
destroyed, not ignored, not shunned. Jesus needs to be destroyed. Now here's my question for you. Is it worth being destroyed for a man with a withered hand? I think it's powerful. Jesus is willing to go to the cross for one person. Jesus is willing to go to the cross for a disabled person. Jesus is willing to go to the cross for somebody that nobody pays attention to. Jesus is going, willing to go to the cross for you and for me. Even if we're ignored by everybody else. This is, a, for me, is a powerful statement of how much God cares about us. Jesus is a shepherd. This man, and why, this is why Jesus gets that say, which one of you has a sheep that falls into a well? He's saying, this man is God's sheep, and I'm a shepherd, and guess what? The good shepherd watches out for his sheep and will not let them go. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Last slide. Old Testament slide from the book of Jeremiah. I put it on because of what it says. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and you have by your power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing's too hard for you. This man reached out his hand so Jesus could heal it. But Jesus stretches out his hands for you upon the cross at great cost so that you can be healed. If Jesus is willing to be destroyed for this man with a disability... Will he not also lay down his life for you? All we have to do is stretch out our arms to Christ and receive it. So what are my takeaways? One, how do you observe the Sabbath? Now, maybe you observe this. We, we observe it very differently. Do you, how many of you, especially old timers, okay, not so much the new younger people, but you older ones, do you remember the time when we used to have two church services? Yeah. It didn't just disappear in this church. It disappeared in churches across the board. And it's interesting because when we had two church services, it was because the Sabbath was a day. You went to church, you worshiped, you greeted the family, the church family, you enjoyed each other, you ate lunch together, you went home, you took a rest, you read a book, and you came back and you worshiped again. And you greeted each other again. Sabbath is a time to do good. It's not meant to be individual where you go home and you do nothing with nobody else. It is a time to bring healing. 
which means maybe on the Sabbath you need to bring people over to your home. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again because it always struck out to me, but the Godings always used to invite new people or people they haven't seen for over to their home on Sunday. In fact, it was really interesting. And if, is Robbie B here? Because I'm going to tell on him. So we're at the, we're at the, the elder training the other day, and, and uh, we called on Robbie, or Drew called on Robbie, and said, Robbie, what are you thinking? And Robbie said, I used to hate Sundays because we always had people into our home. And he was always like, Mom, Dad, how long are they going to stay? And then he said this, now that I'm older, I'm very grateful for that. Because lessons are taught about how you do good and how you bring healing. And it wasn't just good for the people that came to the bees or the goatings or your house. It was healing for the kids, even though they didn't realize it at the time. Two. Recognize, I'm going to put it in the affirmative, recognize people who are being ignored. Or another way, who do you need to recognize? Who do you need to be kind to? Family? Church members? Society? Somebody who has, you know, you know the really easy people to ignore is the people who have hurt you and done you wrong. Ignore them because they don't matter to Jesus, right? I mean, if they've hurt you, you can ignore them because they don't matter to Jesus, right? Oh, I don't think so. Jesus just can prosecute that one really easily. We need to recognize people who have brought us pain. They might, may not reciprocate, but that doesn't excuse us. Three, and finally, stand up for Jesus. If you stand up for Jesus, that means you might stand out, and that's okay. Stand up and speak his name in public, in your office, in your school. What is acceptable in our society is to mention religion and you're praying somebody. What is not acceptable is to mention the name Jesus. Right? Not anymore. My grandmother was a kindergarten teacher. And you know what she did, used to do? She used to bring Jesus into her classroom. They built a well so she could teach, a big paper mache well, so she could teach about who? Jonah. They were always talking about scripture in her classroom. And years later, she shared with me how kids would come up to her and say, thank you. Thank you. Talk about Jesus in your neighborhood and with your friends. Stand up. Don't be afraid to stand out. Let us pray. Lord God,
we give you thanks. We give you thanks for so many things. We give you thanks that um, you, we are made in your image and because we're made in your image, there's no disability that disqualifies us. There's no way that you would ever disqualify us from anything that you reach out your arms upon the cross to bring us healing. And in this case, with Spain, you simply ask him to reach out his hands towards you to bring him healing. So help us to reach out our arms towards you so that you can embrace us. And you already have your arms stretched out towards us. 